severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello there and welcome to episode 103 of Just Get A Real Job. My name is Elliot and I am your editor thing. And unfortunately, Jamie's not doing the intros this week because he happens to be in beautiful Italy. Che bellissimo. So you're stuck with me this week. But as it happens, I have just given him a quick call and he's live right now doing the intros just here. How are you, Jamie? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. How is Italy treating you, son? Oh, it's, it's magic, man. It's really nice to just be away for a bit, to be fair. I mean, I speak about, tell a lot of guests on the podcast about how switching off is really important for creative people, etc. Like, just having a break in that, so it's quite nice to just be away and switch off. Currently in the middle of a, a lightning storm, a thunderstorm, but no, it's good. It's really nice to be out of the country. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm glad you're having a wonderful time. And all the listeners that are listening to this week's episode wish you all the very best on your wee expedition to Italy. But listen, could you quickly introduce this week's guest? Yeah, so this week in the podcast, we're joined by the very talented Katrina McLeod, Cat McLeod, etc. She's a really talented playwright, director, theatre maker. She's directed a short film, etc. as well. She's brilliant. She's from the Isle of Mall as well. We had some great chats about sort of rural theatre. We chatted about her recent play Spin, which did really well and toured Scotland. It was a really lovely chat. She's great. And I'm sure the guests will very much enjoy. Thank you very much, Jamie. That saves me all the hard work. I'm just going to leave you now. Have a wonderful trip in Italy and we'll speak very soon. Grazie mille. Right. Ciao, ciao. Anyway, listeners, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. As said, Jamie's introduced it, but here is episode 103. I'll be back at the very end, but enjoy this week's episode. Good evening, Kat. Lovely to meet you. Thank you very much for giving up an evening in the spring when it's actually a rare sunny evening in Scotland. Much appreciated. <laughs> I know. This is summer. No, but it's it's a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were just sort of speaking off air briefly about, because you were quite an interesting person to interview, because you've done lots of various things. I mean, you'd recently just been on tour with your sort of play spin, which has done really well, great reviews, and sort of toured over Scotland doing that. So I think we got yeah. you a good time, but do you just want to sort of introduce yourself for the listeners and then we'll sort of get into the rest? Yes. I mean, what a delight to be described as an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, my name is Kat. I have been writing for live performance for many years and I kind of started my career as a cabaret singer. So I wrote narratives with music and then I gigged as a jazz musician in, in Edinburgh for a while before the pandemic. And then I really wanted to get back into writing. So I started writing for screen with absolutely no experience. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. That was a wild time. And now I've gone back to, I guess, where my initial creative passion came from, which was theatre. So I now write and direct theatre as well. So I mean, it's been a journey. Yeah. It's been a journey. <laughs> well, this podcast is sort of all about like sort of interviewing people that work in, in the industry in a very honest way about their honest experiences, about the reality from the day-to-day people. I mean, most people that I have on this podcast aren't big like celebrities, but they just feel that they they work in the arts, they love it and they make a living from it. And it's an honest view of it. So I'm quite excited to sort of ask you questions about the variety of things you just demonstrated. We normally start the podcast by sort of asking people their earliest sort of creative memories. So do you remember when you first, as a youngster, thought, wouldn't mind doing something in the arts? Seems like fun. I mean, I was thinking about this. So, I mean, I come from I come from quite a creative household. So, you know, alongside their day jobs, my mum was an artist and my dad has been a musician for essentially his whole life. He still does play in the Scottish traditional music scene. So we always had music in the house and, you know, my mum and I were, and me and my sisters were always making things and drawing and, mm. and creating. And that was just a part of our day-to-day lives as, as kids. But I think for me, and this is an art form, I will always hold up as high art. I think my true introduction to theatre, which I've said is kind of my main creative passion, was town panto. Mm. So community panto was when I first thought, 
oh hang on because I I basically got involved because I did ballet and highland dancing from about the age of five and then we were roped into being I think it was mice in Cinderella and it was probably the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my entire life and just that yeah so I'd say that was that was where it all started because suddenly we were with grown-ups that we were like oh they're actors and we have to wear costumes and there's people and they clap and this is very exciting and then I did panto basically every year until I was 18 and then went to uni and then after I graduated uni I came back and was Cinderella in the you know a starring role it was incredibly exciting to do that that was 2011 which feels like a very long time ago but yeah that that's where it all started I think Panto is amazing it's so much fun and community Panto as well brings so many people Mm -hmm. together and so many different age groups and then that also became something that we did as a family because my my mum and my sisters were in the Panto and my dad was in the band so Mm. it's just it's very rooted in the the influence of my parents I suppose yeah it's really interesting you sort of have mentioned community Panto because for a lot Mm. of people you know particularly listeners that are in Scotland and stuff that grew up like that is probably the, one of the first exposures you'll get to the arts like because that's the sort of thing that will come mm-hmm. into primary school really young and you know yeah. I remember again of like the earliest live sort of especially if you maybe didn't have parents or like or from a class where you had access to like going to the theatre regularly or going to gigs and stuff yeah. I think that's probably one of the first exposures most people will get so it's really interesting that was that partly was like a massive influence on you as well as your parents both being in the arts, etc. Yeah, I mean, I look back on it, I think so, and we'll probably get into this later in the podcast, it's it's the answer to many questions. Mm. So much of what I do incorporates music in some way. That's been something that has kind of been a through line for everything. And panto is a form of entertainment that combines narrative with singing in an accessible and I guess less formal way than perhaps musical theatre or gig theatre or, you know, it's a really accessible art form that for me growing up, everyone could participate in and everyone could come along to. So it was a very formative experience. And it's interesting now to be looking at what I do in that context and circling back to those I guess, fundamental principles, not just of the mm. art form, but of who gets to enjoy it. 100%. And I think I think this will actually tie into my next question, which is about where people are from. And we, I mean, I love this one of my favourite questions yeah. to ask on the podcast because we have such a range of people from so many different places. But I know yeah. that you're from like, the Isle of Mull and right and it's quite a rural I don't think we've had many people from a like rural place like that on the podcast which mm-hmm. is interesting to have you because that must be a very different experience to like you know ha- access to the arts must be much more limited I imagine than mm-hmm. if you grow up within driving distance to a city for example. Yeah I think I've been incredibly lucky even now I, I'd say the, you know, the appreciation and involvement in the arts is still pretty strong. Mm. But definitely when I was growing up, this is pre-internet. Mm. <laughs> so I did Highland dancing and everyone in my year essentially did Highland dancing. So when we all did the panto, it was me and all of my primary school friends. You know, we were also all in the Gallic choir together. And it was very much a community of people who went through school doing all of these extracurriculars together, which I think was a now looking back I think of what a luxury that was whereas if I'd lived in a Mm. in a bigger place I maybe might not have had the courage to to join those kind of extracurricular activities because I wouldn't have known anybody Mm. so yeah I think being from a small place I mean I also think a lot about it I spent so many of my teenage years like desperate to leave because I just imagined you just imagine what's out there so I think for many people, Mull is an inspiring place. And I think my inspiration came from the fact that it's very beautiful. The fact that there was a lot to participate in, but also a desire for more. <laughs> like that kind of frustration that there were limits to what was on offer. And even the, the first show, the first cabaret show I wrote was about coming from a small place and and the world not being what you thought it was going to be and how lonely that can be. So I think it, it in many ways has shaped the characters I write and there's you know isolation is is definitely a a theme I think that comes from growing up in a in a more isolated place Mm. on top of living back here during the pandemic I think there's a lot maybe I'm unpacking in what I'm writing to do with that (laughs) 
I mean, in terms of inspiration, living somewhere like that sounds very nice because it's like, you know, it's the sort of a bit more in nature in a way. But at the same time, like, I'm kind of curious, like, being somewhere like that now or at a point in your career where you maybe want, like, mm-hmm. trying to move forward and, and make more things, and is, that must have challenges as well that probably need fixed, like, in terms of accessibility. Mm-hmm. Do you think the pandemic's improved accessibility for the arts in a rural place like Mall, or do you think it's made it worse? Like, I think there are lots of factors. I mean, for a start, Ben was uh, was designed to tour rurally mm. which I was really excited about because I, I suppose my introduction to theatre was in church halls and in you know Mull Theatre on the island used to be a converted barn out in a village called Dervik mm. so it was a very beautiful unique space that was a formal theatre but it was very different to what you would now you know it wasn't the king's it wasn't the space that Mall Theatre has now. I, to be honest, I think when we weren't sure if theatre was going to come back, that's when I really wanted to write for film because it felt like something that was much more possible to make small scale. But also I was at that time, I guess, surviving on digital theatre. So in many ways, I think digital theatre has made theatre accessible and it's something I'd like to see invested in mm. in a more continuous way especially because there is a lot of talent in rural Scotland and access to opportunities and not just in terms of work but also in training is they're entirely dependent on I suppose the goodwill of rural organizations or the capacity for rural organizations which I think has become increasingly difficult in the funding climate that we have now so the appetite is there I think for me I'm you've caught me at a funny stage when I'm I am now looking to move back to to Glasgow and and rejoin the community physically, not just because of lack of opportunities, because I've I've worked, I've been very lucky to work for Antober and Mall Theatre over the past three years. But it's more about, I suppose, creative inspiration and wanting something new and and wanting to start fresh and yeah, be be part of the community again, which mm. which is the social acts aspect of creativity. Yeah, can be quite challenging when you live rurally. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a very multifaceted thing, I imagine. Just to pick up on one, like in terms of the representation, do you think that not just in VR, but like in the general creative industries in Scotland and the UK, do you think that rural places like Mull are being represented more, or do you still think there's more work needs to be done, and and are those opportunities being given to people enough in these places? That's a very big question. I think. Yeah, apologies, I know you're not a politician, but I'm putting you. <laughs> No, it is a good question. I think, I suppose in terms of representation within the stories that are being told, I think there's a lot of work that could be done to tell or to to represent rural communities and Gaelic, I suppose, in a way that's not tokenistic or isn't patronising. That's not a subtweet. Mm. I just think there's more work to be done there. And I'm I'm not a Gaelic speaker, but I do, you know, understand that there are so many great artists making work in that language. Mm. I'd like to see, I suppose as a wish, I'd like to see rural communities represented in stories that aren't twee or murder mysteries. Oh my god, Kat, <laughs> this is one of my favorite topics at work in in developing TV uh, series. Like yeah. I read so many scripts and like pitches and stuff, and I, it, it's got Scottish stuff either it has to be really urban, really murdery, or really twee. And I'm like, can we just make something that represents modern Scotland whether that be set on the Isle of Mull or in Glenox yeah. where I'm from or even in a city it's like we're a modern yeah. you know let's rec- represent a modern country that we are yeah yeah it's mad I think I think <laughs> that frustrates me because Mull is actually it's just full of really interesting creative people and mm. interesting people who don't work in the creative arts like there's just such a spectrum of life here and I imagine it's the same in, in lots of rural communities and yeah. other islands which aren't as good as not, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I have a real appetite for telling those kinds of stories. Mm. And I actually wrote the character of of Pauline and Spin. She was very loosely based on on myself. And we ended up changing the character through rehearsals because Louise, our brilliant actor, is Glaswegian. So she put a lot of her own stamp on that character. But in my mind, there is something really interesting about that. You, It doesn't matter where it's set. It could be anywhere. Mm, 100%. Uh, 
there are so there's many universal etc yeah well there's i mean there's so much to unpack in that answer and i apologize literally 30 minutes or so into this interview i'm asking all these big questions <laughs> no it's great i love talking about it <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure some of this will come up as we go on but another quite one of my another i mean i said the last question was one of my favorite questions asked but this also is a favorite question to ask, but do you have like a favorite word or phrase from mull or where you're from that you really that's, that's always chimed with you oh i don't know how appropriate it is Oh, you but, can say what you want. We've had some belters on this, so in the time um, we've been doing. So my favourite word is Hurava, spelled H-O-O-R-V-A. <laughs> no, hang on, let me write it down. H <laughs> H-O-O-R. OVA, which is short for whore of us. So it's like if it, if it's a bitch of a day, you'd be like, oh, the weather's whore of a rubbish. Or, <laughs> you know, it's if it's icy, it's whore of a slippy outside. It's uh, So that's my favourite word, which oh, I don't know how PC it is, but it's great. I also catch myself saying yeah a lot, which is, is apparently Gaelic for God. But I don't know. I think my family has a lot of unique Scottish Gaelic adjacent words that might be unique <laughs> to our family. Oh, it's um, lovely to hear some. Yeah, another good one is sprachle. I've heard Which, that you one know, before. You've heard Sprackle. Okay, I don't have to mm. go into that. Because, yeah. yeah. I'm not even sure I know what it means. I, I just have heard it. I, I mean, to be fair. So if it can be multiple uses. So mm. if you're out sprackling with somebody, you're wink, wink. But if you fall down the stairs, like you're sprackled on the floor. Right. So that's a I big think, word. I think I follow. Messy. Yeah. It's it's messy in multiple contexts. <laughs> that's brilliant. So just sort of like um, I know you mentioned you went off to do to university and you'd done some that you know sort of in community pantomime yeah. stuff growing up and things and you'd always had an interest in music. What did you sort of go off and study at uni? Was that in the arts or was that just like something separate? So I did English literature at is quite St. at St Andrews which I have to stress, I was, you know, not posh, which was great. I loved, I loved St Andrews. I loved, I had a, some incredible English teachers that I learned so much mm. from. And I got really involved in the theatre and music scenes. So that was a really, a very formative experience. And I was chatting to a friend of mine, actually. The theatre scene in St Andrews was very mixed and it was almost like there was a mainstream theatre scene. Mm. And then there was sort of the, the fringe of that scene. So I was kind of in the fringe and doing Sarah Kane and doing... Mm. Lots of very random plays that were quite political. And then I joined a soul band. So I kind of had this very, again, broad spectrum of everything going on, which was great. Yeah, it was really great. Mm. A really creative place. And a lot of the friends I still have from that time were in either theatre or music, which is great. And then I went on to do theatre practice, the theatre practices masters at Glasgow. So that's what first brought me to Glasgow. Mm. which was 10 years ago this September but wow. I don't want to think about that for too long <laughs> you, I mean it's interesting how many parts of Scotland you've sort of been involved and worked in as well I mean yeah I also didn't realize St Andrews had such a big creative scene because I mean as a fifer like you don't really I don't really consider St Andrews it sort of feels yeah. like a separate place it was a lot I mean it's a very nice place I never thought about having a creative scene before but that, that was really interesting to hear yeah it, I mean it definitely did when I was there and I do think the theatre society is still going but no I've I I feel like I've managed to hit some really interesting his, like historical mm. moments in, in things. <laughs> yeah, because it's not necessarily a university. You'd, it's not exactly synonymous with mm. creative arts. But it makes but, sense. It does make sense. Yeah. It's got quite a big student population. So There's not of... that much else to do. <laughs> yeah. Other than, you know, being, my life was just lectures and rehearsals, which I didn't mind at all. It was great. Yeah, surprisingly good. Actually, I I've, I was there. This is the biggest imposter moment of my life, but I was there for a careers day and was talking about music. And there's a really big film community there as well. So I think, yeah, a, a big appetite. There's a, you know, a, a festival, a theatre festival and lots still going on that was founded when I was there, which was such a long time ago. But I think again yeah. it just speaks to that thing we were talking about at the start about there's an appetite for the arts in all these like localised parts of the country probably yeah. across the whole UK and like again it's important that you know it's amazing you were talking about but Spin is designed to be a, a play that toured I mean we'll come on to talk about yeah. it properly soon did you know I think I think we're probably and it's hard in a cost of living crisis especially for small theatre companies and musicians to want to you know to have the ability to do that but yeah. I think it definitely is sad to see that you know most of the big plays or concerts and stuff do tend to happen in the city because and it's so expensive and everyone has to sort of travel it's a shame that we can't yeah that can't be taken out to the people and more of a low in a more localized way but I suppose it's, it's difficult yeah I think sorry to bang on about them but 
you know, and Tober and Mull Theatre have always really championed musicians. Because again, like if you're a new musician who's putting out their first album and you're maybe not with management, you're entirely dependent. And I said this earlier, like the goodwill of musicians and paying you properly and putting you up because accommodation is such a big issue in, in rural places, you know, Mull and the islands especially. There's just nowhere for people to stay that's affordable. Both if you want to live here long term or if you are just, you know, a touring musician on a very tight budget. It's just financially and geographically complicated. But yeah, it takes a, a lot of logistical energy and desire to include both emerging talent and local communities within the scene in general. And I think, yeah, my general understanding is that there are lots of great music venues that still do that but but it's funny like I've I've just come off a run of gigs in Edinburgh and we do jazz gigs and even even looking at this is totally going off on a tangent but no even way, looking at like the musical character profiles of Edinburgh and Glasgow were so different oh yeah so when I was living in Edinburgh there was just a really tight-knit community of jazz musicians and then quite a lot of opportunities for us to be gigging in bars and restaurants and and that was kind of a bread and butter income and then thinking about the Glasgow music scene, which is very much people who write their own music and much more like indie bands and folk. And they're just two completely different cities. And then I think what's wonderful about Mull in particular is that people come to everything. The, the venue doesn't program one type of music. It programs so many different genres and has a real legacy of of offering diverse programming, which which I th- I think makes it really exciting. I think rural venues are are exciting in that respect and that they're not limited in what they choose to present to people, which means I think audiences here are included in a way. And and if you've got if you've only got one music venue, then it's a great opportunity to see lots of different things and find new music and find new bands. Which was my experience of the music venue here and growing up here. I never thought about it like that, but no, it's really yeah. interesting. I once again sort of hijacked, I was going to ask a question about your sort of early career and I, I went off on a yeah. tangent about rural <laughs> representation again, but that's fine. But just sort of on that, that you were you went to Glasgow to do a master's and study and stuff. So mm-hmm. was that when you sort of got into the sort of cabaret, like performance stuff? Was that around that period or had that always sort of been a thing? Yeah, so, so I'd been in the band at uni and I'd done street theatre. And never, those those two things had never really met. And during my master's, I was really exploring solo performance in a way that I hadn't done before. So the master's was really exciting in that it was a, a combination of academic research around any chosen field of study within theatre or within the context of the, the programme. There was a lot of independent performance projects that you could choose to work with other people or you could make independently. And then we did a lot of collaborative devising as a group. And for my independent practice, I chose to kind of focus on autobiographical solo Mm. performance, which I look back with mixed feelings because I know it was objectively not very good. But also what it did for me was open up all these other possibilities of what theatre could actually be. It was a very expansive Mm. programme and we had access to this professional theatre all through the year which was extraordinary for us hilariously we did a 24-hour panto me and some (laughs) me and some of the team I think it might have been my idea it sounds I mean judging by what I've mostly talked about on this podcast I think it was probably definitely my idea so we kind of like stayed in the theatre till about five o'clock in the morning and then went home and came back really early and and spent the whole day making a panto that we that we then performed and Tony the brilliant lighting designer in the theatre department in Glasgow the technician he came in he was like I'm gonna light this beautifully so we had this beautifully lit absolutely chaotic panto and like last minute invited loads of people and I wish I'd filmed it because I just know it was a riot and I cannot remember for the life of me anything that happened in it because I think we were all just sleep deprived and a bit delirious but anyway so yes after I finished my master's I didn't really know what to do with all of that creative energy and I didn't really know where I where I kind of fitted into the theatre scene in Glasgow that I was aware of at the time I didn't really feel like what I did suited live art or, you know, performance art in a way that other people in the Masters, they made work that really suited that context and was really, you know, exciting in in that way. And I really missed singing. So after graduated, what really got me into it, actually, I used to work at a really beautiful cafe called The Project Cafe, and it was on Renfrew Street. And it's not there anymore, but it was next to Manders and it was Locavore for a while. But Project Cafe was just such a lovely social enterprise space. 
and they used to do open mics and I was kind of in this stage of my life being like I've just graduated from this theatre masters I've no idea how to work in theatre in Scotland I don't know how the industry works I don't know anyone in it I feel very like on the outskirts of things I have all these ideas of things that I want to do and no idea how to channel it and what form it should take and then I just started singing again at these open mics and something really clicked in me that suddenly writing a solo performance around the songs that I really loved just made perfect sense and that's that's how I wrote my first show so it was just a a strange twist of frustration and opportunity so that's where yeah that's where it came from (laughs) and on a practical level were you able to make a living at that point from cabaret singing and performing and touring or did that come a bit later on no I mean I honestly think I have only been able to make a living from what I do in the last year like I have I have always supplemented my creative career with other jobs in other industries Mm. so at that time I worked in the cafe and I did my first show at the festival which we crowdfunded for and then I managed to stay with friends so we ended up keeping the cost down and we did free fringe so we didn't have to pay a venue fee so really all I paid for was flyers posters and then Finn Anderson, the wonderful, wonderful musician who worked with me on that show, we recorded a few songs and made a CD and sold the CD at our free fringe venues. And mm. that's how we recouped any any of that. Yeah. So just just I like to be transparent about no, how I, I did the fringe because the yeah. fringe is just an incredibly impenetrable fortress. Oh yeah, I know, hundred <laughs> percent. It's even worse now. It's terrible. It's in a terrible state yeah. now in the yeah. council living crisis but i also appreciate the transparency about like how you've always had to supplement you know your art as yeah. well because again as i said at the start this podcast is all about that sort of conversation and that's why i think a lot of people like to listen to it because it's like a lot of people go on podcasts but they don't they're maybe not honest about yeah there are in that sense and i think it's really useful for people to un- feel because most of people will be like well i'm in the same position i might give yeah. up it's hard but it's nothing but it's not it's this thing like when I was a when I was a musician there was this unspoken assumption that everyone made their living from it and you would be thinking well what's wrong with me why can't I okay I'm gonna work even harder I'm gonna push myself even harder and I just think there would be such a pressure off if people were a bit more transparent about it 100% because especially now that I'm trying to move back to Glasgow I'm just looking at the cost of being there thinking I don't know if I'm gonna get enough creative opportunities in the next year to be able to do that so then I am looking to work in other in other industries Uh, again and being a freelancer is uncertain and it's Mm. never guaranteed especially in a cost of living crisis it's probably even harder but like in sort of from there then and obviously doing that fringe stuff did you then go off was it like kind of linear in the sense that you go and sort of do the jazz band stuff as well or that sort of come over time my 20s were characterized by me being in a city and being like, oh, now I'm not happy anymore. I know I'm going to move to a different city. And then <laughs> thinking, oh, I'm still not happy. I'm going to move to another city. So I I went from Glasgow. I was there for about two and a half years, which up until this year is the longest I'd lived in a place. Mm. And then I moved. I was like, I need something bigger. I want to be where the people are. And I took myself down Dick Whittington style to London. <laughs> so I was in London for about 10 months. And in that time, no, hang on. I did, that's a lie. I did The Fringe once. I stayed in Glasgow for a year. I wrote another show. I did The Fringe again. And then that September, I moved down to London. And I took the show I did that year to Vault Festival, Mm. which was cracking, which was a really great experience. And then I came back to do another show at the festival and ended up moving back and then came back to Glasgow. I just, London was not for me. But again, I maybe would have a different experience of it now because I was working full time in a restaurant and it was just exhausting. It was like the Mm. the pace when you're working full time and then being creative and then trying to have a social life. That pace of life just did not suit me at all. It was just working so hard for so little and just I felt very lost in London, I think, because I was still figuring out if what I was doing was really for me if it was actually how I wanted to to make work and I actually found that kind of trying to promote cabaret was very difficult because Mm. I think cabaret is is a really interesting genre it's it's I call it a magpie genre it's there's so many different elements that make up cabaret performance 
And I think when you kind of straddle theatre and music, it's a much harder sell than if you are doing music and burlesque, for example. Like there's yeah. there's a there's a context, especially in terms of venues and for promoters and for variety nights. That's something that's much mm. easier to fit into a variety programme. Whereas if you're doing an hour long show that is essentially a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Like taking excerpts of that, and usually I, I kind of have a bit of a tendency to sing very sad songs, mm. <laughs> which is not hugely commercially viable in an entertainment context. So I think I think I was kind of struggling with the identity of what it was I was doing and how I could diversify my income as opposed to just doing to be cynical about it, just selling a show as a product. So that was that was very difficult. But then I did I did come back to Glasgow. And I think it was that fringe. I came back to do another fringe. And I think that was the one that was a bit of a game changer for me. Because I worked with a band called the Blues Water and they were a blues band. So the the show that I think that was the year it might have been that was the year I did a show called Wayward and it was based on like the blues mythology of selling your soul mm. to the devil for you know musical talent it was a kind of an, an an Alice in Wonderland type show but about yeah, someone yeah. who fell into a, a speakeasy and met lots of interesting dark characters and I met a lot of musicians that fringe and that was where I started to get really interested in jazz I've loved Billie Holiday and Nina Simone my whole life. And I know Nina is not strictly jazz. Like, just just to clarify that I know that in <laughs> case any, like, music nerds are going to come for me. But meeting, meeting musicians who, it, it just, that opened up my world from a musical perspective. And then I ended up moving to Edinburgh after that because that was where the scene that I wanted to be part of really was. And it mm. was there that I put a band together and and... Yeah, we started gigging and doing the jazz bar for the first time was a dream come true. Yeah, and then we we ended up we had a really yeah, we had a really great run of gigs. We did we did a great gig at the Edinburgh Jazz and Blues Festival and we were doing like Crail Jazz Festival and Aberdeen Jazz Festival and and it was yeah, it was it was a, it was an amazing time. And I did that thing again of being, well, something's not right here. <laughs> and and it was cuz I I hadn't written a show in a long time and I was singing songs that I hadn't written cuz I don't read music and I don't write songs that there was something yeah unfulfilled and I I don't think there is a there is a happy medium I think it's so much of being creative as being guided by what's missing or yeah or that or, yeah mm. which I I used to have an existential crisis about because I thought it meant I was destined to be unhappy forever but it's not it's just it's directive it's directive yeah. like frustration and longing are very informative feelings yeah and I think also just allowing your curiosity to guide you if that doesn't sound too pretentious sometimes it's just like yeah just be like okay I'm just gonna lean into this and see where it takes and uh, you know it doesn't always mean you, you need to move city but sometimes it maybe does so that's fine yeah Hello, it's Jamie here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated. And I mean, there's lots of podcasts. We all love podcasts, but it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth, and just telling friends and family to listen or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcast, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it, it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash job, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. So was it sort of in the pandemic then that you were almost in a way forced to return to where you're from and Mull and stuff and then reassess a lot of this stuff? And yeah, so I was going to say Mull on it and I didn't even mean it as a Ew. pun there, but then we'll, we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I again, full disclosure, when I was gigging in Edinburgh, I was also singing in a wedding band and I was working in a really lovely 
cafe in Leith, which was, I think, one of the best part-time jobs I've ever had. It was just, and I just wanted to shout it out. It doesn't exist anymore, but I just wanted to shout out that particular job because I met some incredible people. And it was one of those beautiful, rare part-time jobs where Mm. they really understood that I had another career and were really accommodating. So it was gold standard part-time job. Yeah. So when the pandemic kind of rolled around, I knew, well, I lost all my performance work with no Mm. furlough, which, you know, I'm sure everyone has kind of been in the same boat with that. Yeah. And I had a really strong desire to come home and to be here and be with my family. I was, I think it was a a no brainer for me. And the past three years on Mull have been a gift. It's been it's been amazing to have spent all this time with my family that I wouldn't have got to have spent, you know, I, I would have just kept my head down and, and ploughed through mm-hmm. otherwise because I think I definitely had a, a habit of being quite obsessive about my, my career and my work. And again, talking about directive emotions, I think you get into very, well, I got into very bad habits of comparison and jealousy and I, th- I, I th- almost I think, think I think a lot of people do though I think that's very common on this podcast people a lot of people yeah. are you know that I think everyone's always con- it's a social media age as well you're, you know oh that person's having a great time they're doing all these shows and it's like but you don't always know that behind the scenes they're like I've made no money from this show and I'm actually deeply yeah. deeply miserable and I'm they're probably comparing themselves to other people as well so I think yeah again a very good thing to be very honest about yeah I think I not that I would ever look at a global catastrophe and say there was a silver lining I think for me, everything worked out in a really beautiful way. Like coming back to Mull, I feel incredibly privileged to have been able to come home. Mm. And my home is one of the most beautiful places on this planet. Not to brag or anything, but it is. (laughs) And I felt really inspired to start writing again. And I felt like I had the time. I didn't always have the energy, but I had the time. And there was something about that, I suppose, boredom, but also fear. Yeah. Kind of pushing me to get things finished. I think that I think that was maybe the most not luckiest thing about the pandemic. You know what I mean? Yeah. The the positive having, side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly having this energy to actually finish things. So I think I wrote probably more than I've ever written in my whole life in that first mm. year of, of lockdown. One of the things I wrote became the short film I made with G Mac. Yeah, which was um, about, which was actually what I was about to ask you about. So you did perfectly yeah. rolled into that. So I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll let you sort of continue talking. Yeah, which was another I have a theme <laughs> in the last few things I've written they're about two people but one of those people may or may not be real and the person who's imagining or meeting them you decide is mm-hmm. quite lonely and isolated and frustrated so Little Lark is the film I made with GMAC through their little picture scheme and I wrote it I think I wrote it early 2021 as kind of a a again the beauty of having all this free time was that oh I have an idea and I have time to do it so I think that was a bit of a fever dream script where I just had an idea and bashed out a draft in an afternoon and then GMAC said yes to it and it's this yeah mad little surreal comedy Mm. that we shot on Mull in November 2021 which was also a bit of a mad experience because I managed to schedule the two days of outdoor shoot like in the middle of a storm so we had like gale force winds of like 70 miles an hour and we were shooting in the highest point in the town but we we somehow managed to make it all work with this Mm. you know we had a tiny crew it's all outdoors it's all on location it was windy but it was beautiful like just the colours of the skies it's it was a really special few days and is the is the film like available for people to watch anywhere is it, is it doing the festival circuit still or is it like is it's, it on anywhere so I've I've put it out to a lot of festivals and it's not it's not been picked up by any but I think I think I will put it online soon I'm going to get advice on on what to do again I know nothing about the film industry. I know nothing about how these things kind of work. I don't know how film festival selection processes work. Like I'm not I'm not too disheartened about it. It's not mm. like I I made a thing that I really like. It's yeah. and it's it's going to be what it is. And I think also, you know, one of the pieces of advice you get when you make film is that, you know, don't have high hopes for a short film because what it's actually for I suppose if, if you're being strategic about it, what it's actually for is to prove that you can. The calling cards, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's way too logical for me. <laughs> <laughs> you're led by creativity and feel it, yeah. Yeah. It's mm. my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> is that something you'd like to do more of then? I mean, I'll, I'll get, I'm about to, I'm obviously going to talk about spin in a second, but do you think you'd like to write more things for a screen or do you feel that theatre is more like, I mean, you can do both, obviously. I'm not trying to prescribe either. No, I think it's, it's, I'm at an interesting point in my career 
where I have written many things. I've assisted, directed, and I've directed things. And I've worked in, you know, other jobs in, in film. I've done script supervising and other bits and pieces. I think the dream for me, like it is such a luxury and a privilege to be able to write and direct your own work. And I think there are projects where that's how I want to approach them. I don't, I want to write and direct them and devise them with a group of creatives. And for that project, it's, they're, they're usually like my most personal projects mm. are ones that I want to work on in that kind of environment. But I'd also love to write and give it to other people. And I'd love to direct things that I've not written. I'd like to be able to separate those two yeah. parts of my life because it, it keeps it interesting. Well, not just keeps it interesting. It's, it's, Again, I'm trying, I'm trying to be <laughs> business minded. And it's if anyone else struggles with creativity and, and their business strategy, like let me know because it's the it, I think it's the hardest thing about being a creative. Like I've always found the hustle. I, I think it's very hard. I think a lot of, that's why a lot of brilliant creatives never make it because unfortunately in the industry you have to have that other side to it. And again, what I've always tried to make just get a real job is to, does as a toolkit for people on various creative you know yeah. backgrounds. But sometimes it's quite useful for people to be honest about how they got something made or how their experiences in because then it allows people to hear. Yeah. Oh, you know, maybe I can try this way because there's not a right path either, and it's really. Yeah. Yeah. hard to constantly be you know business minded like a lot of my job is all about what can we sell to, and what tv can we get made and it's like very market focused and that's not naturally where my interest and it's not a natural thing to be but it's something you have to learn and sort of be okay with I guess as well and it's not it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people yeah but I mean like in terms of my writing like I would love to to write more short film I it's still a very big dream and challenge to write a feature which I think is going to take a lot more time and discipline than perhaps I currently have <laughs> because I think I think with film you have to be planning years in advance you have yeah. to be like okay whereas I feel like my theatre projects are are largely responsive to either um, topic that's within our minds at the time so spin was AI spin was very much a response to how the conversations around AI are moving and how fast AI itself is moving Mm. And I like to write theatre. You know, my next play is very, very personal. I say my next play, like, get ready, summer 2024. Like, I, I don't know <laughs> if it's ever going to see the light of day, but the next the next project that I really want to write is very, very personal and challenging. But I know I want to capture what I'm doing mm. right now because it feels just feels like the right thing to do. Whereas, Perfect. yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a TV pilot in the bank. I've got all these pitches for bits and pieces. And I think with short film as well, I loved being part of, of GMAC. I loved being part of the Little Pictures cohort. I think micro budgets are a huge challenge. I think what I've come to realise is this is maybe, and this might be me just waffling on from limited experience. You can really tell when a film is made with two grand as opposed to 15. Mm. It's an unhelpful and insurmountable barrier in some ways. 100% and then you have TV series now which are getting made for like what four or five million pounds an episode sometimes more so it, it's now even shows that used to be you consider a big budget don't they look a bit like obsolete you could argue some yeah. still very good but it, it does make the market very complicated yeah and I love how theatre can really embrace and this was this was a beautiful thing about spin mm. I made it knowing I wasn't going to have lighting rigs so it had to work in a setting where there would potentially be natural lighting yeah and Vanishing Point's Unplugged series it's a brilliant way of producing theatre and it's a brilliant way of using those community spaces because you know the seating for as many venues as we possibly could could do it was set up in cabaret style and it just had this really lovely I don't want to say informal that doesn't feel like the right word but it just it essentially embraced the venues it went to yeah which I, I think I, is I a really, really exciting yeah I, I, I saw it in Edinburgh because you sold the Tron out before you even booked the ticket which is very impressive no we were all three nights sold out in Glasgow and I got I, I returned back to Edinburgh where I lived for a long time so I was quite happy to do so anyway but like you know it was really I didn't expect it to be I, in my head I was running late for oh my god I'm gonna have to do the awkward thing I'm gonna come in and like there'll be those people you know what I mean it was like oh just slot in and sit at the back and it was all very much you relax very community aspect have some have a bit of cake yeah. have some whiskey I like I, you know that's nice to get it makes it feel quite accessible, I guess. Yeah. Which is always nice. So even when we did go to venues where there was lighting, it was like, oh, what? Oh, cool. That's very mm -hmm. cool. And I didn't manage to see a lot of the tour 
which I was really sad about because I was doing other other bits and pieces. But when I did catch it, I got, yeah, you get great updates from from tour life. And they went to some great places. And But again, like making work to those kind of restrictions is really exciting to me. Making work that is, I guess, quote unquote immersive because it's responsive to the venue it's in is really exciting to me. And that's, a, I guess, a testament to the limitlessness of theatre in many ways. Yeah, because you can take a physical space and transform it because the space, a stage becomes whatever you say it is. So, you know, for example, the the, the piece I'm working on now, it's set on Earth, but it's also set in space mm. or there are there are beings that may or may not be there again. It's, it's a theme of mine. What's real? <laughs> Whereas if you were writing that as a script, you'd have to be like, this is in space. Cool. How do you do that without VFX? Like, how do you do you know there's yeah. there's there's something about taking an empty space and just bending the truth that is just really exciting and that's I think that's what I love so much about live performance mm. is how you can transport people using actually very little and in the case of spin which we mm. you know we sort of both starting to talk about as well that effectively what just a washing machine and two performers on the stage but it worked brilliantly yeah it was such a fun show to make and again I, I felt I was like you talk you talk your work down a lot and this is, again, if anyone thinks it's only them who does that, it's absolutely not. So I'm like, oh, I made this weird little show. It's like, no, I, it was fun. It was, it went quite dark and I didn't mean for it mm. to go dark. But AI is uh, really terrifying. So yeah. that's why that went dark. Do, do you want to sort of quickly summarise what the, sh- in you know, very quick terms, what the show yeah. is actually about for the listeners? Because, I mean, yeah. effectively it's just like a washing machine that comes to life in a sense, right? It is. It's about a woman who starts a relationship with her smart washing machine. So the washing machine functions in a way like the devices we already use but because it's and I, I really wanted to write about washing machines specifically <laughs> because washing machines know everything about you if if a washing machine could analyze dna and dirt compounds and fibers from public transport and pollution from rain it could pinpoint your exact whereabouts and who you were with mm. and what you were doing and what you ate and it it knows all of those habits and all of that really really personal information that yeah that it's it's so easy to give your phone access to the microphone it's so easy to give you know your laptop access to to all of your personal information because it's annoying to be like decline cookies it's annoying to like go through forums to say I don't want to give that permission so it just makes it so easy for you and it's the social dilemma that that documentary on Netflix is you know if you're not paying for something you're the product Mm. yeah and it just it got me thinking because it's such a throwaway line in the play as well where Pauline says do I have to say confirm every time and Max the machine is like no would you like me to disable two-step security and she said yeah it's annoying and it's it's a very throwaway moment but because she (laughs) does that he's able to make decisions for her and send messages to people that she's not given him permission to do and essentially expose the biggest secret in her whole life and it everything kind of crumbles and and it it, it feels very like it obviously it feels very relevant now especially with the whole chat gpg whatever it's called i don't know gpt GPT is going to take my job in five years, so I'm just I'm I'm, a bit, I'm not bitter. Ah. I'll be writing scripts in no time as well. Um, oh, I don't. I'm terrified. <laughs> no, oh, I will not. I'll never replace this. But you know, it felt very. It did feel very current, and it, it just very funny as well because it, I imagine if you said to somebody, "I'm making a show about a washing machine coming to life," that's a hard sell. But this show's very deep and like it kind of it doesn't it doesn't even feel silly in a way. It feels very like it's quite human. It's a very human washing machine. I'm talking shite now, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, no, I know I, exactly what you mean because I also shout out to Matthew Lenton of Vanishing Point, who I pitched the idea to, and he was like, "Cool, yeah, I like it," which was astonishing to me because I was like, "But it's just a show about a washing machine," and I did really want to embrace the comedy of it. I did really want to not shy away from the fact that there's a man playing a washing machine and that's ridiculous in a way but then it definitely and this is such a testament to the actors Andrew Key and Louise Haggerty that we just managed to find that human person in that machine Mm, and give him like I think the my favorite part of the show and this isn't a spoiler my favorite scene in the show is when Max the washing machine he's on stage in human form and he's kind of running through in his quote-unquote mind all the information he has about Pauline. And he says, I want to make my own memory. And he essentially invents a diary entry. It was one of the most exciting mm. days of rehearsal when we did that. 
because Andrew just made it so human and so tender. And then it was suddenly your emotional investment in that machine completely changes because you're seeing it become sentient. So then when Pauline, and again, this isn't really a spoiler, when Pauline comes in and is mean to it, you're like, we, I think this is, this is what's insidious to me about AI is that I think it's a mirror. I dabbled in chat GPT Mm. for, to research because I wanted to look at models of, of AI bots and how they spoke and try to write something that was believably AI, but it would say thank you when I said thank you. So it would reflect yeah, my behavior back to me. So I just think if, if AI goes evil, it's because we've taught it to go evil. No, 100%. Like, and that's what, yeah, that's what Mo Gauda, who's like an amazing sort of speaker, is. he's, he's yeah. sort of talked about this before a lot. And when I've listened to him on podcasts and in some of his books and things about like, the, that's a big threat because we need to be nice to it because the way we speak to each other online, it doesn't actually reflect the humanity of who we re- normally are. So totally. it, it learns that behavior from the way we speak online to each other, which totally. even in a tweet or a text is so direct and so lacking in human emotion and love that you know that's what was yeah it's very relevant and quite quite terrifying yeah because I I, there's no doubt in my mind and I don't think I'm being a conspiracy theorist here there's no doubt in my mind that AI is going to grow into something that can respond to things better than we can There's a great, it's it's one of those little TED Talks, but it's a little animation that you can find as a clip on YouTube. And it's a computer scientist, Stuart Bartlett. He has this incredible talk where he's talking about AI and machinery that is, it has this immense capacity to do things for us and be productive. But the problem is, is that it doesn't have a capacity for human nuance. So the example mm-hmm. he gives is that you could program a robot to go and get you a coffee, but it would not understand a cue. So it, what could happen is that it would kill everyone in the Starbucks to get you a coffee because it doesn't mm-hmm. have a plan B. You haven't programmed it to have a plan B. So I wanted to really explore that in the play of, okay, so Pauline's given this machine permission for this very specific thing, but she's not given it boundaries or given it limitations or Mm. given it other options to behave in a different way. And it has gone to an extreme emotional level because it can't, it's not self-aware. It can't step back and, you know, and it's quite controlling. And I I think it, it also works as, I suppose, a metaphor for more coercive relationships and how isolation can make people quite vulnerable. Um, And I I really relate to Pauline in many ways because it is how amazing that she suddenly has this being that can make decisions for her because life is overwhelming. Like it is it is sometimes just, you know, overwhelming to think about every little tiny detail when that is the that is essentially what makes up your life. Yeah, and, and the play obviously it, it's done very well. It's just finished touring like like two weeks ago. I think it was the last show I went to actually. But do you know yeah. what I mean? So what are you hoping to sort of do it another run of it? I mean it was successful and stuff. Do you would you like to take it back out or do you think that's it for now? I don't know. I mean it's it's I have been getting this question a lot, which is delightful. <laughs> like I'm I'm really pleased there's an appetite for it. I don't know what that would look like. I mean, in my mind, there's another version of this show that is, you know bells and whistles I think it's a show that you could lean into the tech element of it and again what I was saying earlier about using a blank stage and it being whatever you want it to be there's there's a much more dystopian sci-fi abstract staging of this show that would be bigger and potentially have a bigger cast and maybe multiple maxes or Mm. you know multiple Paulines or you know there's I have a a fantasy of that being a thing but no like concrete plans um, oh watch the space people we'll, we'll see what yeah. happens yeah I mean if anyone has any ideas yeah, yeah. <laughs> well one of the questions and and it'll be a good one to ask you as well because obviously you've had such a varied career mm. and like you know you've been done so many different things but it's a hard industry mentally on a, a lot of people right and mental health is always and you know something that's important to talk about etc how do you keep yourself going as a performer as a creator like how do you sort of keep yourself healthy mentally and um, physically etc when in such a hard industry I think I mean f- Again, to be transparent, I could definitely be looking after my mental and physical well-being a lot more than I do. I definitely struggle. I mean, work-life balance is such an overused phrase, but it is very difficult. And I was thinking, I've been chatting to a lot of people about this recently. It's it's an industry where, you know, some of my best friends are also my colleagues and my peers within the industry. But I find that a very beautiful thing. I think I have a really strong community of people who really, really get Yeah 
how brilliant this industry can be and how relentless and difficult it can also be. So yeah, so that's that's definitely how I kind of emotionally regulate. I think I have a, a good habit of being open. I think mm. a lot of what I've done is, you know, vulnerability is a really important part of I don't want to say my practice because I haven't done this long enough to have a practice. I'm 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 an open book as a person and I think that's I've I've found a way for that to be a very good thing. Because I think honesty is what's going to keep you strong. Because if you're honest about having a hard time, it's exactly that thing of suddenly lots of people are going to be like, oh, do you know what? This is really hard. And then suddenly you've got support. Yeah, I think the worst thing I did for my mental health was carry on and think and pretend that everything was fine when it wasn't, which is incredibly isolating. I've got a good dial for for when I need to to step back. Mm. Like I know, I know what burnout feels like. Yeah. So although it's... Who has time for hobbies in this industry? Like <laughs> it becomes your got, hobby. If you've sense. got a hobby, let me know. Like I know, I'd love to know as well. I want to. Um, I want to join a, a a rubbish football team. So yeah, I want to move back to back to Glasgow and join a really bad football league because I'm I think, not. Yeah. I can't play, but that's my dream. <laughs> I, I think it is important though to find something outside of it because, as you're saying, it's mm. great having friends in the industry and friends that do the same thing. But then it blurs the balance between life and work because it becomes your pub chat or whatever as well. And then sometimes yeah. you have no time away from it, and it's really hard. But thank you yeah. so much for like that really honest answer about mental health because again, it's important for people to know, and it's different for everyone. But like, it's a very hard thing to work in. It's a very hard industry and very weird and unique industry. So I, I yeah. people struggle, and I think it's important to hear them. And sometimes you just have such wayward unpredictable working hours that oh, all of oh, all of the yeah. actual foundations for your life like your meal times and your mm. you know your chill out time just go out the window and you have to adapt and that can yeah. feel that can feel really destabilizing 100%. it can feel really destabilizing and I think we're programmed to just be grateful that we're working that yeah. we don't stop and say actually I need to take an hour I need to just 100%. not not go to the pub for uh, for drinks tonight I need to go home I think I've got a lot better at regulating mm. I think it's very myself important. in that respect yeah yeah I think the regulation yeah. thing's very important just get a real job Obviously, the name of the podcast is Just Get A Real Job. We'd all had to work jobs that we didn't like over the, in, in our careers to support ourselves and support out. What's the sort of worst sort of part-time slash real job you'd ever had to work in your career so far? You know, I've actually had quite a few horrors. But the one I'm, yeah, the, the restaurant job in London was quite, was, a, was an absolute hmm. shocker. And people who know me know what I'm talking about. It doesn't it doesn't exist anymore, so I don't feel bad about it. But it was a very dodgy as in I was I was, you know, working as a quote unquote freelance waitress. Mm -hmm. The hours were ridiculous. The pay was shocking. We weren't getting our tips. It was just a whole it was a whole thing. It was a whole drama. Although having said that, that job was way more fun in terms of who I got to meet and who I'm still friends with. Again, I've met some of my best pals through that job it's very much you know baptism of fire mm. together kind of atmosphere I did work in a shop and it was quite a quite a high-end like interior designy shop that was just the most soulless place I've ever worked and I I actually would say that that was worse like standing still behind a till and not necessarily getting on with your colleagues that mm. that made me that was the job that made me think I don't care what I do but if I don't like who I work with nah I'm out I'm out so that was a funny, that was a funny experience. Not, <laughs> not to tarnish the reputation of the retail industry, which is, yeah, I've had some great retail jobs, but that one particularly, I think it was also, you know, quite a posh part of a posh town. Mm. So people weren't always nice to you, but it's in never, a, you know, I mean, anyone who's ever worked in any kind of customer service job <laughs> knows what it's like to be spoken to like you're an idiot. I think it makes you a better person and it makes you well, more, well sometimes <laughs> and it makes you more grateful when you when you get to sort of get paid to do what you love it definitely I mean, makes you more grateful even in the hard times it made me a bit bitter and mental but it can uh, do that too yeah obviously it's not okay not condoning <laughs> it whatsoever um, just always trying to find a positive spin sometimes too much but I mean Kat I've got one more question for you but genuinely 
Emily, thank you so much for your time and for being so oh, no, honest and, and thorough with your answers and stuff. Um, I normally get my guests to sort of close with a bit of advice for anyone that maybe wanted to work in the creative industries, particularly yeah. areas you work in. What, what would your sort of closing advice be to people? I mean, again, I don't I don't feel experienced enough to give advice because I honestly don't live by rules or live by a practice. I just am not disciplined enough mm. to have an established way of doing things. But what I would say, and maybe this is more kind of life advice. Again, I was chatting to a friend of mine recently and I'd maybe had like a pint or two and I was like, Do you know what I hate? I hate people who don't try. And I like hate is a very strong word. So what I would say is if you're a writer, submit to everything, finish the play, finish the script, have faith in your idea, because you're the only person who could have written that. I think we we put ourselves down so often. And again, it's that awful system of comparison. But really, truly, you are the only person who could write what you write, because you are the only person who comes at it from your angle. So I would say just have faith. And even if you don't have faith, have the audacity to chuck it at things and chuck it at people mm. and talk to people about it. And that's, I guess that's also transferable advice to performance and transferable advice to directing. Because I, I don't want to give too much advice. It's like, you need to research all these opportunities and you need to be doing open mic nights and gigging. And like, that's just not possible. Like, I think our mm. tolerance for bullshit has gone way down over the last three years. And I think yeah. it's it's very good and healthy that we're prioritising our lives as opposed to our careers. For sure. But no, but yeah, I think as well on that note, like I think the uh, audaciousness is a really, I would just say be audacious to boil it right down. Like if you want to work with someone, email them. If you like a company's work and you follow them on Twitter and maybe that maybe people don't want this to happen, but I have met, I'm delighted when people get in touch with me because it's like, oh, great. Maybe we'll like, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of getting in touch with people, having a Zoom seeing if you're compatible, seeing if you like their idea, seeing if they like your mm. ideas for their work. I've been very lucky in that those kind of really by chance emails that I've sent because I've I've had a burst of courage have resulted in really lovely friendships and very strong creative partnerships. And we've tried and tested a lot of things and I've really grown through the process of doing that. So just try like mm. <laughs> like it's it's That's absolutely great. you're you're not going to come out looking like an arsehole just because you've tried you're really not yeah i like it be audacious and try that's a good way yeah. to, to end things Kat, thank you so much yeah. for your time on this and it is much appreciated well done again on spin and look yeah. forward to the next oh. isolated sci-fi play or whatever we, <laughs> we get maybe no well i say no more sci-fi but i think that's actually a lie surprisingly no one's more surprised than me <laughs> Well, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, guys, that was episode 103 of Just Get A Wheel Job. Thank you for tuning in this week. Also want to give a big, massive thank you to Kat for joining us this week. And also a big, massive thank you to Jamie for me calling him to do the majority of the intros this week. Let's put, let's be fair here. I, I, I just sit behind the desk and I do mainly just the hard work of making him sound great and proper. I did disturb him when he was having dinner, but do hope he enjoys his pasta and his glass of red wine. Probably Chianti. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. If you want to check us out on our socials, there's links in the bio. You can check us out for our website as well. And also, if you feel that you would like to contribute to the podcast, we're independent. You can also donate to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash job. That's it for me. Hopefully, Jamie will be back next week, probably with a bit of colour, and probably he might, you know, pick up a bit of an Italian accent, you never know. But until then, take care of yourselves, and bye for now. Just get a real job.